Our sermon passage today is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 22. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Bless the words of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to have all of you with us this morning. We are in the middle of a series uh, that's going to take us through Easter, which is very late this year. It's at the very end of April. And we're going to be taking all of these weeks and looking at Jesus' journey to the cross, which is typically called his passion. And so that's where we are. And we come this morning to uh, a a passage where last week Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem. This is already the last week of his life, probably somewhere Monday and Tuesday of that week. And now he has come into the temple uh, as he's come into the city to inspect and see what's going on. And what we find is... Uh, It's quite startling, actually. Jesus has gone Chuck Norris on the money changers. That's what's happened here. He's throwing furniture. Now, what in the world, right? It's a little bit disturbing, isn't it? Excuse me, we're not used to seeing Jesus act this way. And I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and uh, through person of Jesus study and teaching the Bible and pastoring and all those kinds of things. And it's interesting that the first reaction people usually have to this scene is perplexity, because in their minds it seems so out of character for him. Uh, Jesus meek and mild. <laughs> you know, Jesus uh, with a gentle look on his face and a halo behind his head, cuddling a lamb in his arms. Right? That's what we're used to. Not this. And let's be honest. <clears throat> I've got to keep it PG, but Jesus is angry. He's very angry. And the reason this is so uncomfortable to us is because it seems to contradict his message of love and forgiveness. I mean, isn't, isn't Jesus all about love and peace? You know? Well, yes, of course he is. The answer is yes. But the truth is... Jesus' anger in this scene is an expression of his love. Because if you ask any parent here, they'll tell you, if, you're, if you love your kids and you see them doing something stupid that's going to wreck their lives, you don't just say, oh, you know, it's okay, here, have a lollipop. Right? What do you do? 
You're angry. You get angry. Why? Because you love them and you don't want to see them make a mess of their life. Or, or, you know, if a kid at school punches your kid in the face and he comes home with a black eye, you don't say, well, you know, isn't that sweet? I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he didn't mean to hurt you. Now, what do you do? You have to fight the urge to get in the car, drive across town and punch the little sucker's lights out. Right? Why? 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 Because, because you, you love your son and even, you know, you, maybe even you love the other kid and somebody's got to let him know that you can't go through life just punching people when they get on your nerves. I mean, there's, in other words, there's times, there's times all throughout our lives when the only loving response to a situation is anger. There are times when love necessitates anger. And so Jesus' anger here is good, it's loving. God's Love and God's wrath are not incompatible with one another. In fact, you can't have one without the other. God can't claim to be loving and not judge and punish sin because that would be like a father saying to his child, I love you, and then not hating the things that threaten to destroy his son. So Jesus is the perfect embodiment of both of them, God's love and his anger. But here in this story, in his anger, he's putting on display the anger and wrath of God. And what I want us to see this morning is, is Jesus, it's really, it's really kind of unfortunate that, that, that the, the Bible kind of groups these stories and then gives them headings in our Bibles because a lot of times they're not real uh, good headings and maybe not the most accurate. And in my Bible, this is the story of Jesus cleansing the te- temple. But I want to tell you, this goes beyond cleansing the temple. I mean, he's not taking Clorox bleach and just kind of, you know, dabbing it around places. He's destroying the temple. That's what he's come to do. He is destroying and judging. He's closing down the temple. He's shutting it down. And that's what this passage is about. And so we need to ask, and we need to answer a very important question. Why is he so angry? What makes God this angry? That's the question before us this morning. And we're going to answer it, hopefully, by looking at three things. Surprise. And we're going to see these three things, just this. That, that Number one, that Jesus expects fruit. And that's why he's angry. He expects there to be fruit. That his people would bear fruit, and they've not. And that's why he's angry. So there's Jesus' expectation that there would be fruit. But then secondly, we want to see very specifically the fruit that he expects. So if he expects fruit, what's the fruit that he expects? And then third, where do you get the power to bear fruit? Where do you get the power? Where do you get the energy? Where does the power for fruit bearing come from? Those are our three points this morning from this passage as we walk through it together. And let's just start here. With the truth, point number one, that Jesus expects fruit. And now what we have to do to understand this is we've got to see the connection in this passage between the temple story in verses 12 through 17 and the fig tree story in verses 18 through 22. Uh, In in both Matthew and Mark, especially in Mark though, this story of Jesus coming into the temple is connected thematically with the story of the fig tree. Now in Mark, Mark uses a very specific literary technique that we don't have time to get into a whole bunch uh, because we're not going through Mark, we're going through Matthew. But in Mark, the scholars call it Mark's sandwich technique. So Mark will begin a story. And in Mark's gospel, he begins the story of the disciples coming into Jerusalem and on their way in, Jesus sees this fig tree. And there's leaves but no fruit, and so he pronounces a curse upon the fig tree. He then goes into the temple mount overturns the tables, all this hullabaloo happens there. They come back out of the city, and as they come back out of the city, Mark tells another story. He finishes the story of the fig tree, and as they come out and they're headed back to Bethany, the fig tree has withered and died. 
And it's Mark's way of helping, connecting two stories like that where the story of the fig tree is interrupted by the story of the temple. And the point Mark is making is that what Jesus does with the fig tree is helping to explain what he's doing in the temple. The two are connected. And so the issue is just this. In verse 19, we see of this fig tree that there are leaves but no fruit. There were leaves but no fruit. Verse 19. Now, if there were leaves, there should have been fruit. Because on this kind of fig tree in this part of the world, leaves always come before fruit. So the fact that there were leaves meant that Jesus should have found fruit. Because leaves always came before fruit. Um, I'm sorry. Fruit always came before leaves. I'm going to mess that up. Fruit first, then leaves. So this fig tree has leaves. That should be the evidence of fruit. So Jesus had every right to expect that there would be fruit on the tree. Because there were leaves. The leaves should have been a sign of fruit, but there was no fruit. Now remember, and so Jesus curses the tree. Now remember, that's a parable. It's a parable of what's happening in the temple. Because when Jesus comes into the temple, he sees the same thing. In the temple, there are leaves. There's no fruit. Charles Spurgeon, who's a great Baptist preacher and theologian, around the turn of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, had a sermon he preached on this, and he has, a great, he has a great statement in that sermon, and I want to read it to you. He says, The blighted fig tree was a singularly apt simile of the Jewish state. The nation had promised great things to God, and when all the other nations were like trees without leaves, making no profession of allegiance to the true God, the Jewish nation was covered with the leafage of abundant religious profession. Now listen. He says, Scribes, Pharisees, priests, and elders of the people were all sticklers for the letter of the law, and boasters of being worshipers of the one true God. They were a fig tree in full leaf, but there was no fruit upon them. For the people were neither holy, nor just, nor true, nor faithful toward God, nor loving to their neighbor. Now listen to this sentence. He says, the Jewish church was a mass of glittering profession, unsupported by spiritual life. A mass of glittering profession, unsupported by spiritual life. Now what does he mean by that? Now think about this with me. This is happening during the Feast of Passover. And here's what this means. It means the whole nation of of Israel, all of the people have come up into the city of Jerusalem. There's probably close to a million people in this tiny little city. And so there's lots of people. Think of this. Lots of people. Lots of money being, you know, lots of money going around. Lots of activity. Lots of spiritual fervor and religious activity. And Jesus looks at that and says, none of those things, lots of money, lots of people, lots of activity, none of those things are fruit. That's just leaves. I mean, that's scary. It's just religious leafage. In other words, fruit is not your attendance at church on Sunday. That's leaves. Fruit is your worship. Right? It's not that we, when we sing, you sing songs. That's not fruit, that's just leave. The fruit is the joy, it's the spiritual reality you feel in your heart when you sing. Spiritual fruit is not practicing the spiritual disciplines. That's just leaves. The fruit is the delight in God you feel in the pursuit of him through the disciplines. The fruit's not even the good works you do. That's leaves. The fruit is the love for others and the lack of self-interest that you feel in the good, that you experience in the good things that you do. Now, when Spurgeon says that they were a mass of glittering profession, he means to describe religious people busy doing religious things. But without, religious people doing a bunch of religious things without any spiritual reality in the heart. 
And that's my greatest concern for us as we try to live as Christians in this time and place. If you're here and you're not a Christian, for you to become a Christian means, here's what it means, it means that the grace of God has come into your heart and begins to change you on the inside and the inner motivational core of your life. That the grace of God in Jesus is a life source. It's a living power that comes into your heart and begins to produce fruit. And the fruit is not just a change in your habits. You know, that you begin to do Christian things, that you go to church or you read your Bible or you open yourself to community or you begin to invest your time and your money in Christian causes. It's all of that, but it's beyond that, that the interior of your life begins to be radically altered and changed. There's deep joy. There's a sense of purpose now. There's, there's, um, you become a patient person. You become a person who's kind and generous and full of faith and courage in the work of God. For your, You're full of faith and you risk, you know, for the sake of the gospel. Those are the kinds of things that begin to happen. But this, see, this fig tree, this fig tree had leaves. From all outward appearances, it looked to be thriving, but there was no fruit. And what Matthew and what Mark are trying to teach us is, is the same was true of Israel. There was religious leafage. There was a lot of religious activity. Lots of people, lots of money, lots of activity, but no real fruit. And, and, the, and the, you know, the... The message that we're trying to center in on is just this. Don't mistake leaves for fruit. Don't mistake leaves for fruit. That's what a lot of people do. That's what a lot of Christians do. Be careful. Don't mistake leaves for fruit. A couple of weeks ago in community Bible reading, we read through Isaiah chapter 5. We're reading through Isaiah together. In Isaiah 5, the Lord... uh, through Isaiah, talks to the people of God and calls them, we're, that we, he says we're his vineyard. He calls us his vineyard. That, that Isaiah says that the Lord came and dug the, the field and cleared it of stones and planted in it choice vines, that he built a watchtower in the middle of it so that the farmhands could keep a careful watch over it. He made sure it got plenty of water. You know, all of these things. Is what, Isaiah's way of reminding us that God has been very good to us, that he's extended every kindness and every grace to us, that we are a people who've been richly blessed And were we to take the time, we would easily spend the rest of our time together this morning just reciting all the ways that God has shown favor to us. But the prophet Isaiah goes on to say, he's very clear that the Lord has done this for a reason, that he has cultivated the soil of our lives. He has worked providentially in the circumstances of our lives for a purpose. He's tilled and watered and sown and weeded because he wants there to be fruit. We're his vineyard. And the expectation is that there will be grapes, that we would produce fruit. But Isaiah says in in chapter 5 there that despite all that God had done, when he came to this vineyard and he looked upon the state of things, there were no grapes. And because there were no grapes, Isaiah goes on to say there in Isaiah 5, you can read it later, that the Lord is going to come and destroy his vineyard. And in very vivid language, he describes this judgment, that he will break down the walls of the vineyard and allow it to be trampled and devoured, that it will become a waste an unkempt mass of weeds and thorns. <laughs> Isaiah even goes so far to say that he's going to command the clouds to stay away so that no rain comes. I mean, it's just a, it's a picture of, of complete and utter devastation. And here in Matthew 21, Jesus sees a fig tree that has no fruit, and he curses it for its fruitful, fruitlessness, and it withers and dies. And then he goes into the temple... And he looks around and he sees what's going on in the temple. And in the same way, he curses and judges the temple and his people for their fruitfulness. And we have to be honest. 
he will judge us too if we don't bear fruit. I mean, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, he, Jesus is addressing the church at Ephesus, and he says, you're doing some good things, but you've forgotten some things. You need to go and repent and go back and do the things you did at the beginning, or else I'm going to come and I'm going to remove my lampstand from you. I'm going to come and I'm going to remove my presence, and I'm going to hand you over to judgment. And if you want to know how it went for the church of Ephesus, go to Ephesus, and it's a pile of rubble because it happened. And what the scripture would teach us is is that the same thing awaits us if we do not bear fruit. James, in his letter to the church as he was pastoring, says, faith without works is dead. In other words, faith without works is no faith. It's not real faith. Faith is completed by works. It's proven genuine by works. Faith is not enough. There have to be works. There has to be fruit. And so that's what we see here. But secondly, so what is the fruit he's looking for then? And that's the second thing from this passage. There's a certain kind of fruit Jesus is looking for. And it's very explicit here in verse 13. If you look at verse 13. And in verse 13, Jesus quotes two Old Testament prophetic passages. One from Isaiah 56, when he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And then Jeremiah chapter 7, when he says, You will make, a den of, you will make it a den of robbers. And in quoting those passages, he's making it very clear what fruit he's looking for. He's giving very clear indications of the nature of the mission that he has given to us as his people. And it's just this. Two things. Just this. That we are called and commanded to go to the lost, and we are called and commanded to go to the least. To go to the lost and to go to the least. And that's the fruit Jesus is looking for. And I want you to see my wording there is very intentional. I use this idea of going to convey a sense of mission that we... As a people are to go to the lost and to the least, not wait for them to come to us. What defines us as a people then on mission is not what happens here on Sunday mornings in this room, but what happens in neighborhoods and school classrooms and college campuses and all these places all over the city. And so as we go and as we strategize, Jesus aims us specifically in these two directions, toward the lost and toward the least. So let's take those one at a time and just look at them for one second, okay? First, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, in aiming us at the lost. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Mark adds, for all nations. Now, in order to understand what's happening here and why Jesus chooses Isaiah 56, we have to know a little bit about what's happening in Isaiah 56. And there it is, this promise, what God is going to do is that God is going to uh, take his salvation and bring it to the nations of the earth. That he is going to take his salvation and bring it to non-Israelite people. So, for example, in verse 3 of that chapter, he says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. But he goes on to promise, uh, through the prophet, that he's going to take these foreigners, these nations of the earth, and he's going to reach out to all the corners of the world and bring the nations of the earth to his holy mountain so they could worship him along with the rest of his people. That's the promise of Isaiah 56. And so his house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples, according to Isaiah. And if you've been reading Isaiah, you you read Isaiah 2 a couple of weeks ago, and you saw in Isaiah 2 that the Lord says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains, Isaiah says, and all of the nations of the earth shall flow to it, and many peoples will say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. In the very last chapter of our Bible, in the book of Revelation, we're told that the end of all things will be signaled by the gathering around the throne of God being made up of representatives from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the earth. 
who will sing praises to God in their own tongue. And so this is the expectation. That God, through Israel, would bring his salvation to the nations of the earth. And the, and the expectation is even revealed in the architectural design of the temple where Jesus is at the moment. Rob, you have my slide ready for me? And I, I just pulled this up from the... It's kind of fuzzy, but you can see there uh, kind of a, rep- a representation of the temple. And if you look there at that picture, the area, you know, the big, the big part is the, where the Holy of Holies is. And then outside of that is the court of the Israelites, and then the court of the women is the, the little bit over to the left in there. But that big, massive area all around the temple that is inside of the walls of the temple complex is a part of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. That huge, big, big part. And you can see the little dots that are little people to kind of get the scale of what's going on there. And this court of the Gentiles is measured by 500 yards by 325 yards, or 35 acres. This part of the temple. Now, what does the size of the court of the Gentiles say about God's expectation of the nations coming to worship him? The temple wasn't, in other words, there's this place in the architectural design of the temple, this huge, expansive place where all of the nations of the earth could come and worship the Lord. And the temple wasn't built just so Israel could worship. It was built so Israel could lead the nations in worshiping the Lord. Now, let me apply that, that this church any church, that the church is not just God's goal, the church is God's instrument. That there is a greater goal. A, a great church is not our goal. A great city is our goal. Our success in 50 years will not be measured by attendance charts in buildings and bank accounts. It will be measured by the visible difference our presence has made in the city of Winter Haven and the world. There are 80,000 people in this city who do not go to church, and there are 2 billion people in the world who do not have a church to go to. What we do about those realities is the measure of our success or failure. Jesus is not angry. Listen, maybe your Sunday school teacher, I hate to break it to you, they were wrong sometimes. And if you were taught that Jesus, what Jesus is upset about is that they're buying and selling instead of praying, that's not what's going on here at all. What Jesus is upset about is where they're buying and selling. Because all of this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. It's happening in this place, this part of the temple set aside for the worship of the nations. It's the only place in the whole temple where Gentiles can come and worship the Lord. And so all of this religious activity that's happening here is excluding the Gentiles. There's nowhere for them to go. They can't pray. There's the bleeding of sheep and all the tables that are set up and all of this stuff going on. And that's what Jesus is so upset about. They're showing no concern for the mission, for the Gentiles who might want to worship. They've forgotten their purpose for being there in the first place. And let me put it this way. Their commitment, their commitment to, quote-unquote, doing church is getting in the way of their mission. They've made it so that church and mission are competing with one another. And so let me just apply this for us. And just say, you can take that off, Rob, if you want. That's fine. Thank you. It's a good, good, good picture. Let me apply this and say it's so easy. It's so, so easy for our time, all of our time, and all of our money and all of our resources as a church to go to maintaining these buildings, to taking care of our kids, for us to spend all of our time with one another and, you know, just kind of being our little thing and just enjoy. It's so easy to do that. It's so easy to get comfortable and say, I like my community group and not start new community groups that we can invite other, invite other people to, Right? It's so easy to say, I like these people. I like the worship here. I like the preaching. You know, it's really great. 
and to not be willing to go and start a new church with a lesser preacher the way these people who started this church did and, and have to set up and tear down every week. Ugh. Which is horrible. But that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. And so, some questions. How are we strategically engaging non-Christians? Are we intentionally building relationships with neighbors and coworkers and people at the ball fields who don't go to church and don't consider themselves Christian? In community groups, are we praying for our non-Christian friends that they would come to know Jesus? Are we consistently seeing people come to faith in this church? See, that's the fruit Jesus is looking for. He wants us to go to the lost, but also, secondly, he wants us to go to the least. And he references Jeremiah seven eleven. He says, you make this house of prayer a den of robbers. In other words, he doesn't just object to where this is taking place, but to how business is being conducted. Now note the reference to money changers in verse 12. Here's what would happen. Because Jews were coming from all over the Roman Empire, from all the different provinces and parts of the Roman Empire, they would come with different you know, currencies and sets of coins. And so what the officials of the temple did is they came up with a temple currency. And what you would have to do is you would have to trade in your money for the money that the temple, you know, economic, you know, life revolved around. You would get temple currency and then you could take that temple currency and you could go and buy the sheep or the goat or the whatever you would need to offer your sacrifice during Passover. Now, what, but what happened was is it was a ready-made system for corruption. Uh, that, that they were charging huge interest rates and all these kinds of things. And so what was happening is the poor were being taken advantage of. And the clue, the clue is, in verse 12, look who Jesus goes after. He goes after the money changers who are fraudulent and who are, and who are charging too much money and those who sold pigeons. That's a really helpful clue because in the Old Testament law, during Passover you were to come and you were to take a lamb and you were to sacrifice the lamb in your place as a sin offering so that your sins could be atoned for. But if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could do this, but if you couldn't, and then if you were the poorest of the poor, the law says, you know what, just get a pigeon, and take the pigeon, and sacrifice it, and so it's very obvious Jesus is concerned about how the poor and the needy are being treated here, and that's what Jeremiah 7 is about, that Israel is not doing justice and righteousness, there's oppression and injustice and innocent bloodshed, Widows and orphans are being crushed and neglected instead of being cared for as was commanded in the law of Moses. Jeremiah, I mean, if you want a good uh, kick in the rump, go read Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah has some strong, strong words. He says, I'm just going to quote a little bit of it, verses 9 through 11. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, go after other gods, and then come and stand before me in this house and say, we're safe. And then go and do those things again. Has this house become a den of robbers? You see that metaphor? That metaphor of the robber's den. It's just this. It's the hideout. It's the place where the bank robbers go, right? You've seen the movies. The bank robbers get away from the police. And they, after the heist, they go back to their, to their place. And they take off their masks and they count their money. It's the safe house. The temple had become that, Jeremiah says. The temple had become the place where people who were doing unrighteous things would come. And they would say, oh, now we're safe. Because we're here. And Jeremiah and Jesus say, Oh, contraire, mon frere. Did I get that right? I don't know. I don't even know what that means. But I think I saw it on a, I think I saw it on a Bugs Bunny cartoon when I was a kid or something. Right? 
No, that's not the way it works. And in the prophetic pronouncement that really comes home in, in all of this is in Hosea 6.6, 6, where Hosea says of the Lord, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus quotes that twice in, in Matthew's gospel, and he's trying to help us see that what really matters is not our attendance on Sundays, but the way we live our lives every other day of the week, especially toward the poor and the needy. But you can't just live however you want. You can't just ignore the commands of God. You can't be stingy with your money and pass by the homeless on the streets and then come to this place on Sunday and say, you know, it's okay. And then leave and pick up right where you left off. It doesn't work that way. Jesus calls us to go to the least. He wants us to be busy with mercy. Not sacrifice. Busy with mercy and justice. It's the same thing in the Isaiah 5 passage I mentioned earlier about the vineyard. Isaiah said the Lord looked. The fruit he was looking for there in Isaiah 5. He looked for justice, but there was none. He looked for righteousness, but there was only oppression. So this is the fruit then that Jesus expects from us. Seeking justice, correcting oppression, caring for the fatherless and the widow. Do you see that in Isaiah chapter 1? Not, not elaborate religious festivities. I mean, that Isaiah 1 passage is just so stark. God says, stop calling worship services. I'm tired of hearing you sing songs. Do justice. You're trampling my courts. Who's asked this of you? Here's what I want you to do. Go, love the fatherless and the widow. Correct oppression. Stop doing all of this elaborate religious festivities. Now let me apply this. Let me apply this. And just say that success then for us will not be measured by how good the worship is. Or how many Bible studies we can fill the calendar with. Success in the mission of Jesus has uh, given us, a me- excuse me, success in the mission that Jesus has given us means. Here's what it means, that life will be different for the homeless, the working poor, the single moms, and the migrant workers of Winter Haven. Because we're here. And so do we have a strategy for caring for the homeless men and women who wander around downtown? Or how are we going to answer the needs of the 10% unemployment rate right now and how it affects families in this room? How are we going to care for the hundreds of widows shut up in nursing homes with no one to visit them? See, that's the fruit Jesus wants. So are you squirming a little bit? Thanks, Carter. Right? I am. I hope you are. And that's the way it's supposed to be because every good story hooks you. Every good story arc hooks you by making you feel the threat, whatever it is. And then just as you're you're about to despair over the threat, the hero appears. Every good story works that way. And every good sermon's like that too. So if you're feeling the threat, if you're thinking, uh oh, that's good. Because here comes the hero. Now I realize to this point, if we're not careful, all this sounds like works salvation. Like if you do good and you follow the rules, if you're a good little boy or girl and you do what you're told, then God will love you, accept you, and you'll be saved. But that's not it at all. That's not, that's not it at all. This passage shows us that Jesus expects us to bear fruit. It shows us the fruit that he expects. But the third thing and the last thing we see is where the power to bear fruit comes from. And it's just this. It's just this. You ready? And this is what this whole thing is about. And it's this, that you've got to see Jesus replacing the temple. You've got to see that Jesus is the new temple. Now, what do I mean by that? And let me try to draw to a close because I'm just about out of time. The temple for the Jews was the place, a couple of things, was the place where you could meet with God. It was the place in all the earth where God's presence dwelled. But it was also the place of atonement. It was the place where sacrifices for, for sin were made. 
Uh, but what's interesting is that if you think through the, even the psychological reality of the Jewish nation, there was this feeling of incompleteness. Because even though God resided there in the temple, it was in the Holy of Holies behind a veil where only the high priest among all the people could go and, and only one time every year. And even though there were sacrifices made to atone for sin, you had to keep coming back over and over again and offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. So no matter what happened, you couldn't ever feel really completely clean or completely forgiven. In other words, the temple had built-in limitations. It, um, It could only take you so far. It was meant to point to the one who would come to fulfill all that it pointed forward to, and here he is. He's come. God in the flesh not God behind a veil, not God at a distance. I mean, to look in the eye of Jesus was to look upon the very face of God. To hear his voice was to hear the voice of God. He was God come near to walk and talk and eat with us. And we don't have to go to a temple to meet with him anymore. All we have to do is go to Jesus. I mean, that's an amen. Wow. That's, you just missed an amen spot. I just want you to know. Just, I just want you to know. I mean, I hope that comes home to your heart. But even better news, this one who is God in flesh, not God at a distance, has come to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He's come to shut down the sacrificial system. And the writer of Hebrews put it this way. He says, every priest stands at the daily service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God. Because by a single offering, he perfected for all time those being sanctified. The blood of bulls and goats are no use anymore. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that completely can completely cleanse you from the guilt of sin. And here's what this means. Here's what this means. Let me apply this. The way you get to God is not through making sacrifices or through religious ritual. You don't get close to God by following the rules. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm a Christian, you know, it means you've come to the place where you realize it has nothing to do with you at all, that your salvation is something that has happened completely apart from you, and it was given to you as a gift. I mean, Jesus is judging religion. He's saying religion, religion is no longer operative. And here's what this means. Go back to the fruit. Go back to the fruit. If you're a Christian, it's not because you've sought him, it's because he sought you. Right? If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, it's not because you wanted him, it's because he wanted you. For we were, ready, I'm a, I, I'm a, I practice this, so hopefully I don't flop. But here's what we're memorizing from Ephesians 2. Ready? And we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the, of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work, the sons, among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest of mankind, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Get this, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, Paul says. Well, thank you. No, thank you. There you go. I did it. Yes. I can feel feel self-righteous about that later on today. That'll feel good. Right? But what I want you to see is what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying in those verses is you were saved by the initiative of God, by the pursuing love of God. And if that's true, then 
Should that not propel us to pers- propel us to pursue those who don't even know they need him? Let's go to the lost. But also, when you experience grace, that, that what makes you that's what makes you a person of justice too, that we were spiritually poor, that we were spiritually destitute. And Jesus came to us and took all of his riches and gave them to us to make us rich. And if you believe that, then you'll take your riches and you'll give them away. So it makes you a person of justice too. You see, believing the gospel is what produces the fruit. Jesus said it this way. According to the Apostle John, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, if you live in me, do you remember what it says? You will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So the promise of the gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins. It is also that he now lives in us and through the power of the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in and through us. If we abide in him, if we live in him. And so how do you do that? How do you abide in him? And the answer in this passage is just this, faith. Faith. Faith is the power source for fruit bearing. And let me just define that for you and then we're done. Faith, according to this passage in the Bible, is to know on the one hand that without him, Sorry, Terry. That's, that's the devil right there, because this is the good part of the sermon we're coming to right here. Faith is on the one hand knowing that without him we can do nothing. But on the other hand, knowing that with him all things are possible. Right? So faith is on the one hand to be completely to completely despair of ourselves, and on the other hand to be completely confident in him, to be completely convinced of our weakness and our need, and at the same time to completely rest in his promises and his power. Faith is to despair in me and to rest in him. Faith is to think little of myself and to think big thoughts about him. It is to expect little of myself, to expect great things from him. Jesus says it's to have confidence, no confidence in myself, absolute confidence in him. And Jesus says, if you live like that, you will bear much fruit. But not only that, he says, you can speak to mountains and they will move. Hello. That without him, we can do nothing. But if we believe and don't doubt that anything's possible, there's no mountain, no obstacle, no circumstance, no problem that he cannot overcome. That's what it means to live by faith. And that's the powerful fruit bearing, to see him in all of his glory and to trust in him and not in ourselves. Now, just one last thought, and that is just this. If you look at this passage, there's a final spiritual discipline. How do you know? How do you track? How do you track where you are in coming to him in faith? And it's very, very, very clear that if you look down at the end of this passage, in verse 23, Jesus says, here's the tracker. Here's the identifiable marker to know where you stand in all of this. And it's just this, do you pray? Do you pray? Because what is prayer? Prayer is the spiritual habit of one who knows, I have no hope. I better, I, better get, I better get what I need to the guy who can do something about it. The house was to be a house of prayer. That's the spiritual reality Jesus is looking for. That's the, that's the energy source from which the fruit bearing come, comes from. Do, do you pray? Faith is to know that without him we can do nothing, but that with him all things are possible. And so let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the patience of these people uh, to listen when I have too much to say. Uh, but I pray that we would be attentive to your words, that what we would be looking for are your words, not my words, that what we would, we would know what we need is your power, uh, not your wisdom, your strength, uh, your grace, not 
any wisdom or ingenuity or creativity we might muster from ourselves. That, that the way we begin to be people who are faithful and bearing fruit is that we abide in you. Because you are the fruit bearer. You are the vine. We are but branches. And so that's why at this point we turn and look to you. I mean, I love, I love the words of this song. That we can in this moment, in this song, glory in your strength. And in your beauty. And in your power to save. And at the same time, glory in our weakness, and in our need. And so help us to do that. Create in us the faith that bears fruit. Create in us the hard attitude that that we know without you we can do nothing, but that with you we can say to this mountain, move and it will move. And that whatever we ask in prayer we will receive if we believe and do not doubt. Drive that truth home to our hearts even as we sing now we pray. In Jesus' name. Uh, Make no mistake about it, when we come to this place in our service, we're not just dismissing you. Uh, God is not dismissing us, God is sending us, right? We are people sent on a mission to go specifically aimed at the lost and the least. But the promise of the gospel is, is that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then he is the one that promises to go with you to bear fruit through you. And so the work is his. The work that we have is to believe in him and to rest in him. And so this benediction helps you with that because it is the promise that as you go, the Father goes with you and promises all of the resources in his heavenly kingdom to aid you and to assist you. And so receive the benediction in this morning as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.